0: In this soundbite taken from our conversation, Professor David Mosey gives his views on whether particular problems during procurement can make disputes more likely and the future of collaborative contracting. Well, it's interesting you mentioned procurement because that links neatly into the next topic that I wanted to discuss, which is the link between procurement and disputes. It's been said that disputes start at the procurement stage, and it's certainly my experience in a number of cases that that is true. And as a result of that, I mean, a significant amount of time and energy has gone into the development of construction contracts and procurement models, which are less adversarial and more collaborative. Um, Have you carried out any research at the centre which points to particular problems during procurement that make disputes more likely? Yes, we have.
1: Um, And um, we started, when I first arrived, uh, we were working off the back of the UK 2011 government construction strategy, which, uh, following uh, the global financial crisis, uh, could have just been looking at uh, seeing who could procure, who would bid the cheapest, because we haven't got any money. Uh, instead, they took a fascinating view. They combined early contractor involvement with collaborative working and BIM. Um, and said that what we need is accurate information. Um, If we don't have accurate information, and people are gambling uh, on lowest price bids and making up their profit through claims, uh, that will not help quality, it will not avoid insolvencies, and it won't really save money. So we did a lot of work with the Cabinet Office uh, on creating the two-stage open book and supply chain collaboration guidance. Uh, We did... Uh, A separate research project, sorry that that led to uh, our involvement in seven different trial project case studies, they're still on the government website and indeed uh, the published two-stage open book guidance still on the government website. We then did a research program looking at the links between procurement and BIM and contracts published in 2016 and then we really stuck our necks out uh, because off the back of all the case studies that we looked at and the lessons we learned with the UK government, uh, we created the FAC1 Framework Alliance contract and published it as a contractual integrator, not only in the UK, but overseas. Um, So we've put our money where our mouth is, really, in terms of not only researching what works and what doesn't, and we've looked very closely at where the disputes have come, and they do come on collaborative projects. It's not, they're not immune, Um, but if if so, do they come because people are being too vague or because uh, they're not really doing what they, they, they promised? And we've created this contractual integrator, this contractual glue, if you like, that you can use with your NEC or your FIDIC or your JCT uh, to draw the parties together, to draw the projects together, indeed, to draw the BIM contributions together. And I mentioned my book, I'm now I'm going to mention it again, 50 case studies, 10 authors in seven jurisdictions, looking again at what works and what doesn't, not, not a sort of idealistic notion of uh, collaboration, but uh, a focus on collaboration as timely exchange of data. To me, that's what it's all about. Have you got the right information at the right time to make a design or cost or programming or risk decision? Um, And can everybody remember where that data came from when the going gets tough later on so that you can all look at your computer screens and remember how the costs were built up rather than start to position for a dispute? Um, and the last thing, while I'm on this roll of, of, of our research, we're currently working with the Construction Innovation Hub and the Centre for Digital Built Britain, uh, examining right across infrastructure and construction the work of high-performing clients and teams. Again, very, very deliberately looking at what is working and what is not. So I suppose what that says is, however much we look at this, there's always more to look at. However many case studies you've you're not going to get a conclusive piece of evidence that shows what works and what doesn't. But step by step, we're getting a really good understanding uh, of what we mean by a collaborative approach, what we mean
0: by an efficient approach. Thank you. You're, you're more than welcome to plug your book. That's no <laughs> problem with that. I think Emma's got a few questions for you, just developing on that partnering, alliancing uh, theme.
2: That's right. David, you've just been speaking about partnering, alliancing and other models of collaborative working, and as you said earlier, this approach towards greater collaboration is one of the most significant changes in the construction industry in the last decade. You authored the PPC 2000 suite of partnering contracts to much acclaim, and my question for you is, what are the key issues with traditional procurement strategies that collaborative contracting seeks to address? Or to put that another way, what are the key drivers towards collaborative contracting?
1: Okay, well, I could give you 560 pages on that, or I could give you three minutes. So Michael Latham uh, expressed this very well back in 1994, um, and he looked at timing. He looked at programming. We still haven't got that right. FIDIC certainly haven't got it right at all. NEC did. NEC have got, are on top of it. You know. Programming, not in terms of critical path analysis, but in terms of who relies on whom and how do you connect the parties to each other in, in a complete way. That, to me, defines collaborative uh, working very well. Um, this sense of fairness uh, is much harder to grasp, and I don't think that we can really nail that one down. It's, it's the, the willingness to, to do something new, and I suppose you link that to commercial motivation. You need an incentive scheme. Uh, uh, NEC, I think, is a little bit fixated with its paying gain share. Uh, I think there are other ways of rewarding the parties, and, and, and I think NEC's weakness is in its optional approach to early contractual involvement. I cannot see how you can have a collaborative approach appear out of nowhere just because you've contracted for it. Um, I think joint planning... Uh, that gives rise to the timely exchange of data so everybody knows the full picture by the time they start on site is a strong feature of collaborative involvement. And that then enables joint risk management. Again, I keep picking on NEC. I mean, they're terrific with their approach to risk management on site. Um, But like FIDIC, they have a formula around reasonable foreseeability as if that is the answer. In reality, there's so much you can do to explore different risk perceptions and possibly reduce those risks during the pre-construction phase. Now, you mentioned PPC 2000. It's it's not a, a, a force in in, in in the procurement world like FIDIC or any CR, but it has been extremely successful. Firstly, again, as a BIM integrator at project level, the big BIM case studies of Ministry of Justice uh, used PPC 2000, and it's The ICE, the RIBA have all recognised the strength of that. But it's combined that with the mandate of early conditional contractor appointments, enabling an exploration of how consultants' work is connected to manufacturers' and subcontractors' work, how costs are really built up, how people have assumed uh, risk situations based on prior experience, whether that's right or not whether there's anything they can do to help each other reduce those risks. So I think we have some serious features there. In an ideal world, you would want lessons learned on other projects. I think it is, unless it's a great big project, very hard to have effective collaboration that's confined to one project because the team disbands just as it's getting a grip on how each other work and what makes each team member tick. Um, but you know you've got as many projects as you've got so you can't have that as an essential. Um, Contracts are therefore process documents here, they're not just risk allocation, they are uh, instruments for project planning, instruments for connecting the team members together, instruments for revisiting bid assumptions, particularly engaging uh, in a review of uh, how subcontractors work, I think they're the Cinderella of the party. They get left out of the, of the thinking. Um, and if you can use contracts in that way, whether it's PPC or whether it's uh, uh, an evolution of FIDIC, uh, which I would like to see, uh, whether it is uh, picking up all the relevant NEC options and, and, and making sure you use them. Uh, you know, NEC really can do a great job if, 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 you, if you apply all the options. Um, you know, then you get contracts uh, doing something that we can see as as genuinely collaborative because to me collaboration as i say it's about data and it's about integration
2: thank you so what types of projects do you think are best suited to a collaborative model and why
1: oh crikey um i that's a really interesting one any project is but um if you look at the evolution of, of collaborative projects for example in australia i think a lot of the thinking there was around large-scale uh, infrastructure projects like roads, rail, that were very hard to ever achieve a fixed price on. And some of the original NEC projects in the UK uh, were adopting the same approach. So they were motivating a joint uh, incentive to manage cost, um, not artificially fixed cost. Uh, so what I'm saying is that the approach to collaboration there is partly directed to the imponderables of a project that, you know, could otherwise just be remeasurable. Um, whereas for a building, even a quite a complex building, um, that where you can achieve a fixed price um, without dumping unreasonable risk on a contractor, um, the focus of the collaboration can be more in the planning and, and more in the testing of the data. Um, so I think it's, any project can be collaborative. What I'm trying to avoid are these knee-jerk reactions of we must have uh, cost plus, we must have pain gain, we must have a no-blame exemption for a normal liability, because all that does is narrow down the number of clients and teams who are going to go anywhere near it. Um, uh, you know, we need a broad church um, at a very interesting presentation from one of the U.S. gurus of collaborative working, Howard Ashcraft, who came and spoke at one of our conferences. Now He does a lot of work in the uh, space of of, of cost plus effectively, incentivized cost plus. But one of the delegates said, well, you know, is that the only business model you use? And he said, no, in, in, in the 120 collaborative projects he's adopted, he probably had 35 business models um we mustn't be dogmatic in our approach to collaboration because that does inevitably narrow the the range of suitable projects
0: yeah david it's, it's certainly my experience that collaborative contracting is far far more common in public sector infrastructure projects um, than it is in private practice we're, we're just starting to see and obviously Because we're disputes lawyers, we tend to see these things coming through quite quite late, you know, many years after the projects have actually been executed. But we're starting to see NEC3 being used on private sector projects, although for the most part they are infrastructure projects, they're just privately executed infrastructure. Do you genuinely believe that we will see more collaborative contracting in the private sector, or do you think the private sector is wedded to... The more old-fashioned ways of doing things, or or commercially, they just find that adopting, you know, very stringent risk allocation, for example, EPC contracts, just makes their life a lot easier.
1: You mention NEC. It is an excellent form of contract, but I don't see it as synonymous with collaborative procurement. I think collaborative procurement is about the processes and the relationships you adopt rather than. contract form you choose. So I've seen public sector clients leaving their collaborative because they've adopted NEC but not actually using the collaborative systems. I've also seen private sector clients, as I'm sure you have, who have adopted all sorts of really intelligent collaborative practices. They just haven't given them the names that uh, would make it easier for people to recognize. So yes, private sector drivers, there is a a strong sense of competitive tension there between clients, not only between contractors. Um, So it is harder to uh, seek or insist on shared practices in the private sector. But I've seen changes with the publication of FAC1, we saw the Football Foundation, not, not a public sector body as one of the first users, We've seen contractor-led initiatives by Kier, by Skanska. Uh, we've seen energy companies, I, whom I can't name because the ball is in play there, adopting the FAC approach. And I think that that's sometimes in combination with their own bespoke project, which they're very comfortable with, as well as uh, sometimes with JCT or NEC or, or FIDIC or, or PPC. So that what that tells us is the... The form of delivery contract on the ground is only one part of the collaborative picture. The way that they knit together the different uh, elements of a big project, the way they knit together the different contributions uh, to design, whether that's through BIM or otherwise, the way they learn from one project to another needs to be contractualized. The way they link the capital phase of the project to the operational phase, which we often neglect. Uh, is really important. And we learned all of that through PFI and then somehow lost sight of it in terms of integrated delivery. So I'm very optimistic. I mean, I usually look at utility companies like Anglian Water. They are leaders in the collaborative space. So I think, I think we're breaking down that barrier. And I think if we can find a way to understand and respect what private sector organisations do, what they are able to share in terms of best practice. And and again, we don't oversimplify what is or is not collaborative, then that is fine. Because because where we have evidence that an integrated collaborative model improves value, reduces risk, improves safety, improves sustainability, why why would they not want to adopt that approach? I I think we have still somewhere deep in people's psyche the idea that it's a soft approach to collaborate and that the sort of uh, grown-up commercial approach is adversarial. I think that's a a fallacy.
0: Um, We we mentioned at the beginning of this podcast um, the increased interest in construction law by international lawyers, international project participants. Do you see an increasing interest amongst your international students in collaborative contracting generally? Um, because certainly it's my experience that of all the various aspects of construction practice, it's in the international sector where you see these behaviors least. Uh, the default position is turnkey contracting risk out, you know, placing all the risk on the contractors. There, there are good reasons why that, that happens when you have project financed construction projects in terms of bankability and what have you. But increasingly, Certainly my front end colleagues are working on ways in which you can make collaborative, contracting, bankable uh, and more attractive to international participants. But but just coming back to the question, how much interest are you seeing from your international students in this area? Well, it's not only my international students, it's my international contacts. And I do
1: think we have a a bit of a breakthrough. Um, So with apologies for framing it in the context of, of the FAC1 form. Um, but this was published in 2016. It's been adopted on £45 billion worth of procurement in the UK because it's become the medium for the UK government as well as for, as I say, a range of private sector clients. So all that is good. But in the context of your question, it's already been translated into six other languages. So it was translated into Italian Uh, in 2017 and immediately adopted on an Italian project which has now been built and that was an Italian project using BIM. Uh, There are two other Italian procurements adopting it, but it's been translated into German, Bulgarian, uh, Portuguese for use in Brazil, Russian, uh, for use in Peru. Um, This is extraordinary to me. Um, And uh, we wait and see how that goes. But, but again, I'm sorry not to be able to mention names, but I've been contacted by an international energy company that wants to trial this contract on a major wind project and a major solar project in Brazil and Spain. Um, and they've gone away and funded it for themselves. And what they're doing, and this is, this is very close to home for you, James, is they're saying, we like EPC contracts, um, but they're not the full picture. Um, And we want to integrate our feed contract with our EPC contracts. We want access to the specialists behind our EPC contract. We want to understand the operational features of of the EPC uh, structure. In other words, yes, we rely on a major contractor to deliver us a plant that will perform, but we're not going to do that blind. um, And we're going to uh, integrate our uh, consultants' roles, our specialist roles in the preparation, the EPC contract, in the delivery team behind the EPC contractor and in the ongoing operation. Um, that is a big thing for the Russians. Um, we'll wait and see how they they use it. Um, it's a big thing for the Brazilians. So um, it seems to me, um, you know, and my experience is similar to yours. You know that the, the international reliance on lump sum EPC turnkey contracts is being challenged, not to throw those away, but to try and pick up some of the missing links and the missing uh, structure, uh, fabric of of, of how contracts can can improve uh, the delivery processes and the relationships. So the students are fascinated by it um, and picking up on it very quickly. Um, I think that Um, the facility for using FAC to fill the blanks rather than to insist people throw away what they're familiar with allows uh, experimentation the flexibility of FAC allows lawyers like your front-end colleagues uh, to make it work it's not uh, sticking a single imprint on on the way of doing things and the fact that it is it doesn't have English law in it it is it is it is a contract designed for international use. Uh, leaves the door open for uh, people in multiple jurisdictions to come through. So I, I see that as uh, absolutely fascinating. Uh, we formed an international best practice group for the adopters of it uh, of, of, of the form. Um, and and I suppose you know you might say oh, you know why are you banging on about this single published form? Are uh, uh, you know we kings and and and, and its joint venture partners uh, take some royalties from this and and you will know there's, there's no money to be made in publications but to have a stable starting point seems to me crucial you know we've used our standard form contracts to have a stable starting point in construction over the years what we've failed to do is find one that breaks the fixed paradigm of of a pyramid of two-party contracts often entered into too late. Um, so, if we have that starting point, then obviously we allow people to adapt to the requirements of their sector and the requirements of their jurisdiction. So, I, I, I think that
0: that uh, not only has a commercial impact, but it intellectually it's very interesting as well. I think what's fascinating about what you've just said is. Certainly, my experience internationally is very often people get bogged down in oh we've got to use a FIDIC form of contract, yellow, red, yellow, silver, uh, whatever, whatever it is. And what what is fascinating from what you've said is that actually people have started to realise that there is a different way of doing things. You can, if you're familiar with using a FIDIC silver or another sort of EPC type model, yes, there are there are advantages to doing that, but there are other ways in which you might be able to adapt it to make it more uh, more productive more efficient i think that's fascinating and i think it's, it's long overdue and I, and I guess it's incumbent upon all of us who are experienced in construction law and practice uh, to encourage clients to be as innovative as they can be and we're there to assist them where we can uh with that and there isn't just one way of doing things that's that's the short point
1: Yes, absolutely, and I think also you don't flip from pure fidic to pure bespoke. I think this is this is and this is this is a bit ironic because obviously as a private practice lawyer, I spend a lot of time drafting bespoke contracts, and it's a lot of fun. Um, I think I would encourage your uh, front end colleagues and front end lawyers everywhere to recognise that a flexible open standard form gets the best of both worlds. It gives us uh, a way of doing things differently, uh, a way of combining it with a FIDIC, if people want to combine it with a FIDIC or with uh, you know, one of those typical contracts that is used in, 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 in the oil sector, those logic contracts. Um, but it also gives the creative legal drafts people somewhere to do their creative drafting but not starting from scratch. Every time you start from scratch with a bespoke document, the marketplace bidders have to read every single line. And however good you're drafting, they will be very suspicious that there are tricks in there because you've been paid by the client to create that form. So you know, on the one hand, you're right, people are slavishly following a FIDIC form as if there's no alternative. On the other hand, they're paying for bespoke forms that have a very limited potential partly because uh, they're alien and unfamiliar to the marketplace and nobody takes any notice of how do you subcontract behind this bespoke form, um, and, and partly because that people are unfairly suspicious of them if they've come from, uh, from a legal drafts person. So I, I feel that, that we're, we're forging a path that takes a lot of people with us Uh, by recognising life's realities and and recognising that people need to deploy their drafting skills are in uh, a way that has uh, the best effect.
0: Thank you, David. I know Emma wanted to ask you a quick question on BIM. So over to you, Emma.
2: Thanks, James. So David, one of your areas of specialty is the impact of digital technology on procurement and contracts. And BIM has been mentioned several times throughout this podcast. And you said earlier that the introduction of BIM was one of the biggest game changers in the construction industry. So for years, we've been discussing the use of BIM. However, it's relatively, relatively rare to see BIM being used in practice. Personally, I've yet to be involved in a dispute where BIM has been a feature. So it may be that the use of BIM has resulted in fewer disputes, but more realistically, it seems to me, is that the uptake of BIM has been very slow. So would you agree? And if so, why do you think the industry has been relatively slow to adopt BIM?
1: There are many interesting issues here. The IT people have felt the need to reinvent the construction terminology. That was a terrible mistake. So it looked like a parallel universe. Uh, it disconnected BIM from contractual terminology that we're all familiar with. Uh, and that made a lot of work to, to resolve those discrepancies. That was one thing. The other thing with technological progress is people never stand still. So having crafted level two BIM, they romped on to level three before there was real understanding and adoption. And now they talk about other levels in a digital world. I mean, it's fascinating intellectually, it's fascinating technically. But we know that the enormous construction and engineering sector need to be helped to work with the art of the possible rather than being forever challenged with uh, new ideas blasted at them from every quarter. So I don't think enough work was done to reconcile the terminology and methodology of BIM with the way that people go about their current work. Uh, I, think it was, uh, I think that's unfortunate. I also think that we protect their uh, corner. So it was extraordinary to me that the first edition of the CIC BIM protocol in 2013 reduced the duty of care to reasonable endeavours and created an overarching ground for extension of time and then said, oh, well, this overrides the building contracts. I mean, for lawyers, that is that's a bad thing. You know, I think mean, people would really should think twice uh, before recommending the CIC BIM protocol as a way forward because it's, it's undercutting the commercial norms, uh, allegedly in the interest of attracting more people to BIM. Well, it hasn't worked and it hasn't been clear enough. So, so I feel that we, you know, we have a good thing there which really clarifies uh, data exchanges, really clarifies risk assessment, really gives everybody uh, a good working tool but we need to be bolder as to how it is contractualized. Uh, you will have seen, I think, the rather half-hearted approach by JCT and NEC. I'm going to lose a lot of friends in this last exchange uh, because they don't go beyond addendums to two-party contracts. You will have seen FIDIC. I know they've got a protocol coming out later this year. But, you know, just giving advisory notes in the end of the 2017 edition And it is because they haven't felt able to jump beyond the fixed paradigms of the existing published forms. I hate to sound like a broken record, but the work that we're doing with the Centre for Digital Built Britain is in part looking at how FAC1 can fill those gaps by saying, yep, you, you work with your NEC contracts, you work with your FIDIC contracts, But BIM requires a contractual integration around a single timetable, an integrated set of deliverables, mutual intellectual property licenses that are not policed by the client through endless two-party contracts, but that actually connect the parties together. In other words, let us take something that facilitates BIM in line with the new international standard, ISO 19650 expressly requires collaboration, not once, about 10 times in the treatment of risk, in the treatment of timing, in the integration of the parties. We need to run with that. So it's a bit like collaboration, which is there are contract-based solutions that I think could encourage people to do BIM and to do it properly without us only focusing on the next stage of white hot technology.
2: Thank you, David. And I think you've probably touched on this uh, already in in your previous answer, but what role do you see sort of information systems like BIM playing in collaborative contracting?
1: I think they go hand in hand. I think BIM is a wonderful enabler for collaborative contracting. And Richard Saxon, who's such a terrific commentator, I mean, he's chair of JCT, so I'm sure he'll forgive me my remarks in relation to JCT if ever he listens to this podcast. But he said, you know what collaborative procurement needed was BIM, and he was so right. You know we we get fixated on good faith, and that just generates more and more litigation. <laughs> we get fixated on no blame, and you have to have a legal definition of that. So again, that as a formula will just give us our- not what we actually need: a systems of integration, and BIM is a terrific system of integration. So to me. The Government Construction Strategy 2011 got it right by linking early contractor involvement, collaborative working, and BIM, and all of the evidence uh, supports that. The two go well together as long as we're clear, as long as we don't get bamboozled by the science or distracted by, as I say, a more formulaic approach to collaboration.